Hello, this is Ian Wolfe, producer, host and writer for Diffusion Science Radio. This show depends on your support. Please make a donation directly with the PayPal button at www.diffusionradio.com. Or you can support Diffusion by downloading a free Audible book from audibletrial.com science. Or go to diffusionradio.com support and click on an Amazon link or buy a nano drone as a Christmas gift. Diffusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. (laughs) (laughs) Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we stir weird and wonderful science directly into the cocktail of your mind. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, we're having a heatwave. And a blood test for cancer. But first up, here's the news. Squeezing water with wind. Two companies are using wind power to squeeze water out of thin air, even in the desert. Dutch Rainmaker have developed a wind turbine that mechanically compresses air until water condenses out. Eor Water uses a wind turbine to generate electricity to run a refrigeration compressor that also condenses water out of the air. Potable water is a finite resource on the Earth, and its scarcity can cause wars. Less than 1% of the world's water is drinkable. Over 2 billion people don't have access to enough drinking and cleaning water. It's essential to life, growing food, sanitation, as well as for industry. Traditionally, windmills have been used to pump water from nearby rivers or underwater aquifers. Unfortunately, not everyone is near a source of groundwater or a lake or river. Being able to pull clean, drinkable water out of the air is a pretty good trick that could make a huge difference to lots of people. Hot air can hold a lot of water vapour, but cold air holds less and less as it cools down. This is why air conditioners produce water as a byproduct. They cool the air so much that water changes from vapour to liquid. The ideal gas law discovered in 1834 says that if you change the pressure or the volume of the container of a gas, then you'll also change the temperature. If you raise the pressure or volume, then the temperature heats up. If you lower the pressure or volume, then the temperature gets cooler. A compressor squeezes the air by increasing the pressure, which increases the temperature. The heat is transferred to the atmosphere with a refrigerant heat pump, and then the processed air is expanded again, reducing the pressure, which cools the air enough for water vapour in the air to condense into clean liquid water. Safe drinking water with no air pollution. Even desert air is 25% water vapour. Both windmills can also be used to clean polluted and salty water by pushing water through a narrow opening from a confined space into the open air. 
Quickly increasing volume equals quickly increasing temperature, causing the water to evaporate very quickly. This is called flash evaporation. The salt and pollutants get left high and dry. A second stage condenses the vaporised water in the air back into clean, drinkable water. Dutch rainmaker turbines can clean 100,000 litres of water per day in high wind areas. The Dutch rainmaker mechanically drives a compressor that cools the air until it's too cold to hold water as vapour anymore. And the water condenses into liquid for collection. They have a model that can produce 7,500 litres of clean water from the air each day, completely off-grid. Dutch Rainmaker have a trial running in Umm al-Hammam in Kuwait for the Green Wall Project. The Green Wall Project aims to plant 315,000 trees along the borders of Kuwait along 420 kilometres over the next 10 years. Obviously the trees will need to be watered where there's no rain. French eel water have trialled a 30 kilowatt hour wind turbine to generate electricity to drive a refrigeration unit to condense water out of the air in Abu Dhabi, the island capital of United Arab Emirates, where it extracts up to 800 litres every day, much less efficient than the Dutch rainmakers' direct mechanical compression. For areas where there's very little wind, eel water also sell solar-powered versions of their water condensers. My question is, if people were to start drawing water out of the air on an industrial scale, would it change the climate? Would it effectively steal the rain from where it would naturally have fallen? Or does water vapour move so fast that there's no harm at all? Keep listening as I ask a climate scientist for the answer, later in the show. These wind turbine air compressors are expensive. At anywhere from half to a full million dollars each, they really are putting the squeeze on people needing water. Getting money out of thin air to get water to the two billion people who need it, now that's a good trick. Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. And now, heat waves. Sarah Perkins Kirkpatrick from the University of New South Wales is a climate scientist at the Climate Change Research Centre. She gave a talk at Ultimo Library in Sydney for Inspiring Australia about heat waves, how to measure them, how they've changed, why they've changed, and how they'll change in the future. I spoke to her after the talk and began by asking her what different aspects of heat waves does she measure? So you can think of heat waves as anything that includes their duration, their frequency, their intensity, and you can also look at their average intensity as well as the peak intensity or the hottest part of the heat wave. 
you can look at their spatial extent. So what area do they cover? Are you interested, for example, in a heat wave that's just over Sydney or one that covers the whole of New South Wales? You can actually include what time of the year they occur. So we're actually seeing trends now that heat waves are starting to occur earlier in the season. And also the, the heat wave season is extending at the other end as well. And is a heat wave just oh, a few hot days or what's the definition? So the global definition is just a bunch of words that say a prolonged period of excessive heat. And that's rather ambiguous and it is quite difficult because sometimes it's, it's actually mainly dependent on the impacts. So depending on what impact you're researching, you'll generally use a different definition. But the thing that that definition kind, kind of tries to overarch across is this prolonged period of heat. So generally it doesn't, it can't really be, a heat wave can't be a single day by itself or a single couple of days. It's usually at least three days or more in a row. So heat wave, it doesn't have to go just for three days. It can go for five, 10, 15 days. The Russian heat wave in 2010 went for over a month, but it has to, they have to be in a row. The consecutive days is a really important thing. And there's changes in the heat waves from year to year. And what are the things that influence that? So when we look at heat waves just from a year to year or even um, week to week, there's three main natural drivers, as I call them. So you have synoptic systems. So these are if you look at the weather forecast or if you love going on the Bureau of Meteorology's website and looking at all their, their little maps, that's the synoptic map. And that's the, the, what the weather patterns are doing control heat waves. Uh, how dry the soil is also controls heat waves. So drier soil generally means hotter weather. And that's usually when we, we have hotter weather during droughts. And also what happens in terms of variability at seasonal scales. So, for example, if you've heard of the El Nino phenomena, uh, that usually, usually means from large parts of the country hot, dry weather due to other things that are going in the Pacific Ocean. So we, we think about heat waves on scales, or they're driven by things on scales that occur on seasonal scales, weekly scales, and you know, the, 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 the drying of the soil can last for anywhere from days, weeks or months. So it's a, there's a time interaction there as well. So the dry soil means the hot air doesn't get as much cooling when it finally gets to us in summer? Yeah, pretty much. So if, if a surface is wet, a lot of the energy goes into evaporating that moisture. Sometimes it might feel quite humid after you've had a downpour of rain and that's because the energy after the, the clouds have gone, the sun's come out again, has gone to evaporating that moisture into the air. So therefore it feels humid. If there's no water left to evaporate, then all the energy that used to go into evaporating water goes into heating the surface. So the less moisture it is, the less moisture that's in the soil or even in the plants that might be on that top of that soil, the drier it is and therefore the hotter it is. Are there overall trends in the change of heat waves? Unfortunately, yes. If we look at heat waves from about 1950 onwards, actually quite possibly earlier than that, but we just don't have the observations to do that. But from at least 1950, we've seen increases in the intensity, frequency and duration of heat waves. Tonight I just talked about that over Australia, but we're also seeing those trends globally as well. And unfortunately, the most scary thing is the number of heatwave days that are increasing. That's quite frightful. Also, if we look at, you know, say a shorter time period from, say, 1970 onwards, the trends are greater still. So not only are they increasing, but the rate at which heatwaves are changing is also increasing as well. I've got a little unusual question that I've been saving up for a chance to talk to a climate scientist. <laughs> I saw an invention where they're condensing water out of the air instead of desalination. If they did that on a larger scale, would that start changing the weather and the climate? That's a really interesting question. Now, to f I've never heard of this invention. Basically, the hotter air is, the more moisture it can hold. 
So, and that's, it's to do with what we call a dew point temperature. So you might have a you know, particular day and it feels really humid. That's because the dew point is really high. Because um, that, that air, that temperature of the air can, can hold more moisture and it's got more moisture in it as well. Now, when you compress the air, it pushes all that out and it changes, you know, to do with gaseous states and all that sort of stuff. I won't give you a chemistry lesson, but I, c- I can understand how that works. Now, a lot of people don't realise that water vapour is so the, the gaseous form of water in the atmosphere is actually a greenhouse gas. But the thing about water vapour is that water on Earth cannot be created or destroyed. We have a finite amount of it and it just moves around in a cycle. And also it's fast moving. So if you think about a night where there's clouds above you, it, it feels warmer. The temperature doesn't drop down as much because those clouds are acting like a blanket. But those clouds move on a daily timescale, even sub-daily. So they don't act like greenhouse gases that humans emit. That it's a much shorter time scale. So if you compress air, yes, it will make it rain. I don't know if therefore that will change the overall water cycle and what's going on in the atmosphere because you can't create or destroy water. It's a, As I said, it's always just circulating. So that's an interesting question. It might be able to make things rain. I would really wonder though if they can really do it on that, that scale effectively. So my understanding is they're trying to condense it to get water for irrigation. So they're not oh. trying to make it rain. They're trying to just get it on the ground, like you're in large amounts in storage, mm. like if you had a condensing coil to, to freeze things, only in this case it's all mechanical. Yeah. So you're trying to take the water out of the air and put it into, say, storage or into the soil. Are you therefore dehumidifying the air a lot and will that cause it? A, if you do it on an industrial scale, is it a problem? To me, like it makes sense. Like it totally makes physical and chemical sense. I guess I've never worked on a farm. That's probably why I haven't heard of it before. You'd have to do it on great, huge scales for it to have an effect. So it's not going to solve. So actually what, what can happen with climate change, what is happening is because the air is getting warmer, it can hold, hold more moisture. So it might rain less, although when it does rain, it will be you know, a huge downpour because it got more moisture that was actually stored in, but it it's needs more energy for it to actually fall out of the sky. This may work, maybe it might be in a way that if it's not raining as much over some regions, but we can measure that there's more moisture in the air, say over a farm, you might be able to compress and get that, that moisture out. So you actually you are actually drying the air out, and as, as you said, you're de- dehumidifying the air. But I don't know how many dehumidifiers we'd probably have to run to to, to kind of get more moisture out of the air everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. So thank you for that. I know that was a bit of a yeah, out, no, out there question. question. Well, look, I, I guess, like, you know, those sorts of things I kind of got to think and criticise in my own brain before I can go, oh, yeah, that's amazing. That's definitely a solution. But it makes physical sense. And I guess it is. It's just a dehumidifier on a bigger scale. But mm. for it to make a huge impact, it'd have to be on a... I, you know, I kind of think of the Simpsons episode where they block the sun out with this great <laughs> disc, which is just, you know implausible and impossible kind of have me on that scale kind of thing for it to make a difference so it's probably pretty harmless for people to use it i was you know we have a dehumidifier in our in our house to to, you know get rid of some of the moisture in the air and i think using on those sorts of scales it's not going to make any difference whatsoever so i did actually as mentioned that you know heat waves are changing and unfortunately there's from the research i've done from the research of my colleagues and many other people overseas that the um the main reason behind that is unfortunately due to climate change. So over the last 100 years, we've seen an increase of almost one degree Celsius globally. And we only need a small change in that average temperature to have a disproportionately larger change in the frequency of extremes and even their magnitude as well. And that's unfortunately what we're seeing. Bad news is currently the future is looking like it's going to get worse. Good news is we still have time to change it. 
So it might be a while before we see those changes if we start switching to greener energy solutions more and more as time goes on, but it will happen eventually. Well, Sarah, thank you very much. That's right. Thanks very much, Ian. That was Sarah Perkins Kirkpatrick, a research fellow at the University of New South Wales who studies heat waves at the Climate Change Research Centre. We're having a heat wave, a tropical heat wave. The temperature's rising, it isn't surprising. Thanks to Irving Berlin for the music and lyrics, and Ethel Waters back in 1933 singing the song. And now get your sparklers ready. It's bright spark time again. Sarah Brooker and Neil Byrne run the science communications company Science in Public. They created the Fresh Science National Competition to encourage early career scientists. The Bright Spark Challenge is for these scientists to explain their research in the time it takes a sparkler to burn down. Here's Majid Mwakiani from the University of New South Wales. He has until his sparkler runs out, after which Sarah Brooker will ask him some questions. Sarah asked the audience to contribute some questions, which the microphone didn't pick up. Fortunately... She immediately repeats them so you won't miss out. Majid, come up onto the stage. Majid Wakiana from the University of New South Wales. Cool, here we go. Hello everyone, my name is Majid from University of New South Wales. We are developing a new generation of systems for early cancer diagnostics. So we try to isolate cancer cells from the blood to use them as a liquid biopsy marker to replace the invasive biopsies that doctors do through the, the patient need needling that they go to the hospitals. So essentially this platform can be used in the future to detect the cancer at a very early stage and also monitor the treatment response of the patient who are under the chemotherapy at much uh, faster times uh, compared to the imaging systems that we have in the hospitals. And we are hoping that we will bring a new platform that will, kill, that will make the cancer a kind of cancer treatment toward personalized medicines and, and essentially better response of the care patients with the cancer. Thank you very much. Well done. So you're saying your technology is better than chemotherapy? No. We want to say that we are a complementary tools to the chemotherapy, that if the oncologist, the doctor who give the drug to the patient can, doesn't have any clue when the patient response to the chemotherapy, we find it at much earlier stage before any kind of imaging system find it out. So we want to help the clinicians to take a better decision when they are administering chemotherapy drugs. Okay, so right now if I have cancer, how, do, how is that picked up? If I went to the doctor right now, how would they pick up cancer? So they normally you go to your clinicians and you give a blood test. So we isolate the cancer cells and we analyze them. And if they are suspicious or similar to familiar type of cancers, solid tumors that people normally have, so we try to, to set you for other additional experiment to double confirm it, then we will inform you. So the beauty of this method is that we have potentially, we can pick up the cancer before any imaging system can pick it up. So you may end up of having, knowing that you have a breast cancer without imaging system telling you that you have a tumor in your breast. And you can start your chemotherapy or your treatment or surgery much faster and essentially get a better response and higher survival rate. So it's a simple blood test and it's going to pick it up before the imaging technique picks it up. So that sounds amazing. Is it in hospitals right now? Yes. So we have now registered clinical trials all around the world in the state, in the UK, in Australia, in Sydney, we have in Liverpool Hospital, 
in the Paris and in the Brisbane. So the system is already installed. So doctor and clinician helping us to collect the clinical data to do further verification before releasing the product to the market. Before releasing the product to the market. So you're in clinical trial at the moment. So if we fast forward for three years time, what do you hope to see? We hope to see that that system is everywhere in the hospitals, in clinic, and essentially all the doctors, all the oncologists all around the world using it. All around the world. All around the yeah, world. Yeah, go for it, all around the world. Now, I mean, this sounds unusual. Surely it sounds quite a simple thing. Take a blood test and, and sort of sort out my cells and pick up any cancer cells. Why has it taken till now to, to be able to do that? What's, what's been the hurdle? Yeah, the, the story has been around for over 50 years. People know that this type of weird cells are exist in your blood and they are mm -hmm. circulating everywhere but there was technological hurdle to pick them out or isolate them efficiently. Mm -hmm. So we tried to tap into micro technologies that for many years uh, con uh, companies like IBM use it for production of microchips, like things that you're using in computers and your mobile phones. Mm -hmm. We tried to convert them to a new tools that can be used in biological application for isolation of the rare cells like your cancer cells. Cool. And how much does it cost? Very low cost products. So essentially each test is going to be very affordable, less than 20 or $30. So, most of the insurance That's gone down from this morning. This morning you told me 40. 40. So, we, we try to. So, currently we are something in a margin of 40 to $50. Yeah. But we are hoping that when the mass production when is happening. When you roll it out across yeah. the world. So, when yeah. we mass production, definitely the cost will going to be lower we'll and lower. Down. That's our target. Yeah. yeah. Oh, terrific. Are there any questions from the audience? Yes. And then over here. So yeah. the question was, in the US, there's a system where someone can take one single drop and detect a whole lot of different diseases. Is this similar? So they are using, we are working at the cellular level. So when you are talking about the drop, so you're talking about uh, molecular or proteins that exist inside the blood plasma. So they, are, they try to look for the marker that exists in the plasma. So they are not super accurate in a fashion that we are trying to get the living cells and Normally, those type of markers, if you want to associate it with the cancer, is come from the dead cells that their DNA release and go into the plasma. So we want it to be much more accurate, and that's why we develop a system that can get the live cells from your body and we analyze it. Thank you. Question over here. Can you pick up all types of cancer or is your technology specific to one type? No, this, this, this is unbiased system. So essentially any type of solid tumors, ranging from breast, lung, colorectal, melanoma, any things that have potentially capacity to get into your circulatory system, we can isolate the cells from that. So how are you, how are you isolating them? What's the distinction? How's your little gadget so separating them? So what we know is that the majority of the cancer cells have a nature, they are epithelial cells, which are a bit different in terms of size and flexibility that they have compared to the normal blood component. We leverage on those distinct differences compared to the normal blood cells and we separate them using our system. Cool. Yes, over here. Ah, how early can you pick up the cancer? At what stage can your device detect so cancer So that's a very cells? good question. That's why we are doing clinical trials. So we have patients at stage 1, stage 2, stage 3, and stage 4, all enrolled and registered. So for the stage 3 and 4, definitely we can pick up many of them. We got some people from stage 2 that imaging systems show very small dots, but we are able to, to get a lot of cancer cells from the blood. So the challenge now is that for the earliest stage patient, which is our target, how fast and how reliable we can do it. 
So it's an argue how many ml of the blood we need to take from the patient to able to get the cancer cells. So the current standard method is around 7 to 10 ml of the blood. What we are proposing, if you could get 20 to 25 ml of the blood, so we essentially can pick up the cancer cells for the stage 1 even. I'd let you take that much blood if you did it every year just to check. I think yeah. I'd, 20 I'd ml see is, that rolled out. 20 ml is nothing, yeah. Across the country and every year at annual checkups. Perfect. Does your gadget have a name? So our device? It's Your called the spi spiral microfluidics. The spot? Sp a spiral. A spiral microfluidics. That's not its name, though. Oh, it's a technology name. So the yeah. device is, I don't know, we don't have a name for it. Oh, it's called CX Chip. Yeah, the commercial uh, name. I think you can work on that a bit. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Join me in thanking Majid. That was Majid Wakiani from the University of New South Wales with a blood test for detecting cancer. A big thank you to Science in Public for permission to broadcast the Bright Spark Challenge. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Would you like to join us? We need more people contributing stories to Diffusion. You can send your contributions, suggestions, congratulations and donations. To science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. And please do send me an email so I know you're listening and you'd like to hear more episodes. Please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. Tell your friends. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolf. Checking production was Charles Willock. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia on the Community Radio Network including two Triple H in Hornsby, Karingai, two NVR in Nambaka Valley, two X in Canberra, and three NBR in the Mallee border districts of Victoria and South Australia. Diffusion is syndicated globally on the National Science Foundation Science360 internet radio station and also on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to the podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com and check the website for links, photos and videos from this week's show. If you enjoyed the show, then explore the more than 700 previous episodes archived on diffusionradio.com, where the shows are tagged by keyword so you can focus in on what you want to listen to. Ask your local radio station to broadcast Diffusion. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know, and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the Earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. Everything from a molecule to a living organism. In the study of sciences found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits. Photography. Collecting. Why study science? Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. <laughs>